Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. We're in Washington today. Yes, the House, led by the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, are moving towards a dual track. They will try to vote a resolution urging Vice President Mike Pence to remove President Trump. That's not going to happen, but the vote's going to happen. Mike Pence removing the vice president is not going to happen under the current circumstances. And then the, the Democrats are threatening to move towards impeachment and voting on articles of impeachment. And uh, as that goes on, there is some polling data. My good friend Paul Bedard at the Washington Examiner has a story out today saying 60% of voters in the battleground states, well, they oppose another impeachment. So Democrats beware, this may feel good to the base, but it may not feel so good in 2022. Uh, While that's going on, we have uh, a a boatload of other really big uh, investigations going on. Uh, One of the questions that I have, having seen the comments by the Capitol Hill police chief, that he had a conversation with the House Sergeant of Arms on Monday, January 4th, two days before the riots in the Capitol, uh, and the House Sergeant of Arms conveyed back to him that Bringing in uh, troops would be a bad idea. And uh, the House Sergeant Arm reports to who else? The House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. So the question I have is, what did Nancy Pelosi know and when did she know it? Why do I ask that question? It seems improbable that after a Pentagon briefing on Monday, January 4th, which, by the way, Pentagon officials confirmed to me on the record, they briefed the police chief on January 4th, two days before, said they had fears that violence could occur, that the Capitol could be in jeopardy, and then offered them the opportunity to get National Guards to reinforce uh, parts of the Capitol, that it would seem improbable that if that went to the police chief, the police chief went to the... Uh, House Sergeant-at-Arms, that the House Sergeant-at-Arms wouldn't talk to his bosses, which, of course, turns out to be uh, Nancy Pelosi. We've been trying to reach the former House Sergeant-at-Arms. He resigned this week. His name is Irving. No luck yet. We're trying to get him. We're trying to get the Capitol Hill police to see if at any point House officials acknowledge that Nancy Pelosi had been brought into the loop. But I want to walk people through some of the reporting we've done here at Just the News because it's so important to understand um, the failures of security that occurred on Wednesday, January 6th at the Capitol. Um, The Pentagon, according to my good colleague, Susan Katz-Keating, one of the best security reporters in the world, really one of the best. We're so lucky to have her here at Just the News. She reports that the Pentagon, after being rebuffed on January 4th, the first time they talked to the Capitol Police Chief, and realized that they want want help. They were so concerned about the potential for violence that the top officials at the Pentagon, including Christopher Miller, the acting defense secretary, and General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that they actually had their own tabletop exercise the morning of the Capitol riots. Before the violence struck, they did a tabletop exercise to figure out how quickly they could mobilize to help the Capitol Police. What does that tell you? The Trump administration saw the intelligence. They saw the social media uh, uh, rumblings that there was going to be violence. They were doing everything they could. They offered the help. When they didn't get their offer received, they planned for a rapid deployment at the Pentagon. That's a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances. You don't see that reported in much of the news media. But I come back. I'm a curious guy, right? I love curiosity. Something tells me that Nancy Pelosi has to answer some questions here. 
if her House Sergeant of Arms knew the potential for violence, knew that the Pentagon was urging um, uniforms uh, soldiers be um, deployed to the Capitol two days before, doesn't it seem possible that the Speaker, the House Majority Leader, others would be read in, contacted, consulted? Now, maybe the um, House Sergeant at Arms uh, didn't, and that's why he's been asked to resign and did resign. But it seems almost impossible, given the pressure, given the starkness and directness of the Pentagon's message, uh, that they wouldn't do this. And the Pentagon showed its concern by running a tabletop exercise the morning of. They were ready. They knew there was a high probability something bad was going to happen, so they wanted to be ready to deploy. That is a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances. They're not the facts that were available to us the morning after when everybody pointed the finger solely at uh, MAGA supporters and Trump. And again, everyone who went into that Capitol, no matter their political philosophy, they broke the law and they should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. But understanding the difference between punishing the perpetrators and better securing the Capitol, they're two different missions. And you can have failures on the House leadership side, the House security side that also need to be illuminated in this because the last thing we want is another episode like what we saw last week uh, at the Capitol. And quite frankly, uh, with better security provisioning, we might have avoided some of the worst parts of that. It's it's pretty clear to me after watching uh, hours of videotape of all the different videos taken uh, that there were ways to better secure the perimeter to prevent this from happening like we do at the White House and other places. Uh, there was a failure of imagination, a failure of leadership, a failure of security planning, and that led to a, a lapse in security that may be the most egregious lapse we've ever seen at the U.S. Capitol. What a, what a tragedy. So I want to put all that on the table, have you think about that. Go to justthenews.com right now. See Susan Katz Keating's story. She's a fantastic writer, great exclusive material, an important development uh, to, to do uh, as we go there. Now, uh, in a few minutes, we're going to have the great Uh, Mike Huckabee on the show, the former governor of Arkansas, the former presidential candidate, a leader in politics, a leader in faith. Uh, He's got his own TV show, his own podcast. Absolutely one of the most dynamic personalities in conservative America today. We want to run by everything we're talking about. Um, uh, The Capitol riots, Trump's legacy, who are the next leaders in the party, and of course the thing that so many of my friends and and compatriots in the news media are talking about, the extraordinary censorship sweeping across America, parlor deplatformed, um, the rise of new platforms, a very exciting opportunities for all of us to, to um, embrace even as we worry about the Orwellian-like censorship going on. Last night we broke the story that Tom Fitton, who's been on this show many times, the head of Judicial Watch, somebody who fights for freedom of information every day. He was deplatformed for seven days from Twitter for a tweet that he's made multiple times. Very simple tweet. It basically says hydroxychloroquine is a safe drug. That is actually factually true. It is safe. Millions of Americans use it. But um, he was deplatformed. That's how crazy this is all getting. In that scenario, in that um, moment, we learn when we dig into it that Tom Fitton previously had received a complaint about this tweet back in September. And at the time, Twitter adjudicated it and came back and said, we see nothing that's violative, inaccurate, 
inaccurate, anything that would require it to be um, uh, censored. So it was good enough a few months ago, and now in this mass hysteria, Tom Fitton gets kicked off of Twitter for a statement that is factually true. It's not in doubt. It's factually true. It is shameful what is going on. And what what do Americans think about this? Well, one of them is pretty easy, right? um, Yesterday, Twitter's stock cratered by as much as 12% in the middle of the day. It ultimately set it out at between 6 and 7% loss in value. But that is a monumental, massive loss of uh, value. Uh, and if Jack Dorsey and the Twitter executives don't realize what investors are telling them, what Americans are telling them, uh, they're going to be in for a long 2021. Now, while that's going on, and we're still waiting for Parler to come back on. I'm trying to get John Matz on this show. He's the CEO of Parler. We can talk about what's going on. Uh, my friends at CloudHub, which I believe is an incredibly viable, vibrant alternative to Facebook, and by the way, sensor-free and privacy-protecting in ways that Facebook does not do with the selling of your data. Um, CloudHub has seen a million users in the last few days join the platform. That is a tsunami of users. If you're a, uh, if you're an app user and you get a million uh, new customers in a, in a short period of time, uh, that is it. So, America speaking, Twitter's stock is going down. CloudHub's uh, visitors are going up. Parler is being rooted on to get onto another platform off of Amazon and get back up. And I think by the spring of 2021, we're going to have three emerging platforms that will rival Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And those are Parler. We talk about that much. I use it often, have a half million followers on there. CloudHub, huge um, new platform. I'm a gigantic fan of it, become an ambassador for the brand, believe strongly that it has a lot of tools and capability. Even if there wasn't censorship going on, I love the tools on this. It's modern. It's cool. It's hip. You can create groups. You can do podcasting. You can do live streaming. You can do video uploads. You can syndicate news content, which we are just the news doing there. But um, that one, and then I think the third one is Rumble, where we currently put our news videos. Uh, the Rumble players, what you see when you go to the Just the News site. That is the advent of a new ecosystem for censorship uh, free, privacy friendly uh, social media users. And, and and when people say, well, they're conservative alternatives, I think they're alternatives for anyone concerned about privacy, uh, censorship, freedom of speech, and quite frankly, new tools and new capabilities. There are things that you can do on CloudHub that I can't do on Facebook. I just love it. I think it's a very robust tool on its own on the merits without the censorship, without the privacy concerns. It's a very powerful tool. Now, I got up on uh, CloudHub over the holidays. I'm a big ambassador for it. If you want to learn about it, quickly get signed up. I create a special page for you. It's called uh, HTTP colon slash slash getcloudhub.com slash J Solomon reports. Let me repeat that. Getcloudhub.com slash J Solomon reports. Go there. You'll see my mugshot. Yeah, I know it belongs in the post office, but it's on there. And um, you can quickly sign up and learn about the CloudHub experience. It only takes a couple seconds. I want to make it easy. You don't have to go through several clicks, one stop shopping. Check it out. I think Parler, CloudHub, uh, Rumble, what a new world we could be building. And we don't have to settle for monopolistic, oligarchic, censoring, privacy invading apps. I mean, listen, Facebook and Twitter are fantastic. YouTube, great. We loved them. 
until they began to exercise their powers in ways that are antithetical to the American experience. Um, all right, folks, uh, enough of me talking about the news and pontificating. We're going to go to a commercial break. When we come back, the one, the only, Mike Huckabee, former governor of Arkansas, former presidential candidate, all-around political leader. He'll be joining us exclusively here at John Solomon Reports right after this commercial break. Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest the former governor of Arkansas, the former presidential candidate for the United States, Mike Huckabee joins us. Uh, Governor, good to have you with us. John, it is a pleasure. You're one of my very favorites. I have admired your work, and you're one of the uh, last of the Mohicans, true journalist. It does feel that way some days, and thank you. Thank you so much. Well, there's so much to talk about today, and I wanted to start with something because I I think you've been talking about this. uh, You've seen this on the horizon for some time, the extraordinary trampling of the First Amendment, the the censor cancel culture movement that's occurring in the big tech and in in the, uh, the left of America. What is your diagnosis of it? And then how do Republicans and everyday Americans roll this back? Can it be rolled back? Well, it, it better be rolled back or we're not just going to lose our voice. We really lose our country. America was built on the idea that there's a, a welcome forum for dissenting viewpoints. And what we're seeing now is the uh, notion that the people on the left have created, which is uh, you can only have one viewpoint and theirs. And the irony is that they talk about diversity, but what they mean is uniformity. They talk about tolerance, uh, but they absolutely live with iron-fisted intolerance. So everything is uh, opposite. Up is down, down is up, in is out, out is in. That's how they live. It, it is truly Orwellian. And I know people use those terms, but uh, we're seeing this kind of thing played out before our eyes. What I hope people will understand is that this is not about Donald Trump losing his Twitter account. That should never have happened. He's right. the leader of the free world, like him or not. This is not about him. It's about every single American who has a point of view that is not left of center. So it's about all those 75 million people that voted for Trump. And it's about several million who might not have voted for Trump, but who may still be pro-life, pro-Second Amendment. Uh, They still go to church. They still believe that America is a great country. And their voices are no longer welcome in the ruling class of the elite. And that ought to be frightening to a lot of people because that's the very worldview 
that their children and their grandchildren are being raised in, and it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, that's a, that is the real concern that this is a this is a speeding train. It's not slowing down. It's speeding. You you have a you know you always have fixed things. You went into Arkansas. You made the state better. You made it stronger. When you look out at this and you're talking to your uh, the conservatives, what uh, things can conservatives do to uh, to counter this? Are they do they have to build their own platforms? They have to create their own Facebook, their own Twitter? Do they have to get their own computer servers separate of uh, political sway? Do they start you know movements in the boardroom? What what are the tools and levers that everyday Americans can do to fight this this uh, trend line that we're seeing? John, I think there are three fronts in which we have to uh, be willing to fight back. The first one is what you mentioned, and that is. Uh, get platforms that uh, are not already baked in with prejudice, bias, and bigotry. That's going to be critical because if the only places that we can stand are places that are owned by those who hate us, we're not going to be able to stand there. We'll never get a ticket uh, to the dance. So uh, that's critical. Build our own platforms. The problem is it's incredibly expensive, but it's necessary. And I think there's a market for it. and Somebody has to have uh, the vision to invest the dollars and believe it's going to be a return. The second thing is to challenge this, challenge it in whatever form we can, whether it's on television, in editorials, uh, challenge it in the college classrooms, uh, challenge it in the marketplace of ideas to the best of our ability. The problem is that is a shrinking opportunity because we don't even get that opportunity. Uh, I think the third thing, is that we're going to have to recognize that the long term is uh, raising up a generation of people who appreciate their heritage as Americans. And, and I'm not talking about that they just love the monuments and like going to Mount Rushmore. Right, and right. This. I'm talking about people who recognize that the American experiment in government, where people govern themselves, where we've loaned power to elected officials who are our servants, and that we don't work for them, they work for us. This whole notion that has been utterly trampled upon is a great idea that has resulted in the empowerment as well as the uh, really um, wealth building for people who had previously lived in poverty. And not just in the United States, but liberty, freedom, are ideals that has unlocked uh, the lives of people around the world from abject poverty, starvation, and uh, famine uh, to prosperity. It didn't happen because uh, of a communist, a socialistic, a tyrannical government. It happened because people self-governed. They had an incentive to work. They had an incentive to innovate and create. And it is American innovation and creativity that made America this amazingly strong country in a record short period of time. It really is amazing. And it seems like that incredible pride, that incredible knowledge, the knowledge of civics and appreciation of the American experience in the world has been eroded by the education system. Is there a movement afoot, not just for school choice, right, to give um, uh, those who have trapped in bad schools an opportunity to get to a better school, but is there a bigger effort that conservatives can take on about the curriculums, the anti-American curriculums that seem to be creeping into, you know, all the way from K to 12, all the way through college? As much as we can, we ought to be running for school board and trying to influence it. But let's be really realistic. Uh, the immediate uh, concern, I think, for many parents is do your best to get your kids in a Christian school. 
And, and let me just give you the sort of three stages of education that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I'll do it quickly because I know time is of the essence here. But when I was a kid, the public schools might as well have been Christian schools. We had prayer, Bible reading. We had devotionals. Uh, there was a moral climate and there was a real God consciousness that was built into the public school system. Uh, nobody was against it. Nobody talked about it. It was just that was the community standards and people accepted it. By the time my children, who are now in their uh, late 30s and mostly in their 40s, by the time they came along, public schools, uh, they weren't quite so uh, faithful to those kind of ideas. They didn't read the Bible or pray at the beginning of the school day. But there was uh, sort of a hands-off. It was neutral. Today, the schools that my grandchildren, if they were in public schools, thank God they're not, but if they were, now it would be openly hostile to a Judeo-Christian worldview. So that's what I've seen happen. We've gone from virtual advocacy to neutrality, now to hostility. And if, if, my, if I had children instead of grandchildren, um, you know, I would want to put them in a Christian school where they're getting intellectual uh, challenge because I want them to understand what's the worldview that is not theirs. I want them to get that. The problem is, if they're in a public education environment, either in K-12 through or in higher education, they're not getting a worldview of what the Judeo-Christian view is. All they're getting is the secular view. And they're being told, yeah, there is this other view, but it's crazy. And the people who believe it are a bunch of loons. And uh, they're ignorant, and they go to Olive Garden, and they stay at you know, the Holiday Inn. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm to borrow a phrase from... Uh, the very elitist snob Anderson Cooper. Yeah. That's what on. Um, we used to be one nation under God, and now we're uh, one nation of elites. And then there are all these other people, the rest of us, and we're just not quite good enough for those folks uh, who, you know, sip their wine and nibble on their cheese at the Georgetown cocktail parties and look down their uh, very not nice noses at the rest of us. Yeah, it is amazing. We began to see that sentiment creep in when we saw the text messages from Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, all those smelly Walmart people. And now, I mean, everybody is saying, you know, they have such a condescending way of looking at half of America. It's um, yeah. it's really it's really damaging. When we look out now, what, what's your take on the impeachment proceedings occurring in the Congress? Uh, uh, when you look at it second time around, we've seen the show once. What do you feel about the movement, what it could do to the Congress, what it can do to the early Biden presidency? Well, I think it's really detrimental to Joe Biden and any hope he might have of being this great healer and unifier. If he doesn't step in and stop this, uh, Democrats are going to further alienate themselves from half of America. Uh, they're going to solidify the Republican base. They're going to rile up the people of America who think this is ridiculous. They're also embarrassing themselves with people who are objective constitutional scholars, the Alan Dershowitzes and the Jonathan Turleys. Right. You're going to have tribe and the far left uh, advocates uh, who will say that there is a basis for impeachment. But the honest constitutional scholars, people who didn't vote for Trump, who don't even like Donald Trump, but Jonathan Turley, Alan Dershowitz of the, the group um, are saying there's no basis of impeachment. This is nonsense. And. And first of all, you can't try somebody who is not in office, and Donald Trump's going to be out of office by the time the Senate will even get this case handed to them. So it's, it's political theater, but it's stupid political theater being done to appease the 
the squad and the people who shouldn't be having that much influence. And ultimately, I think what it does, it sets the Republicans up for a takeover of both the House and Senate in 2022. Um, Nancy won't get to be the speaker and Chuck's going to have to go back to being a backbencher. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, 2022 is going to be a, a tremendously important election. And the, um, the storyline when I talk to people close to Biden is that they're worried uh, that he's going to be spending all of his days wearing his breastplate backwards because he's, he's more worried about the fire behind his own line than he is about the Republicans. And, you know, he wants to get stuff done, right? He wants to get an infrastructure package done, but he's going to have all of these dynamics behind him. If you're Donald Trump and you've got the traditional Republican Congress here, you've got the all Democratic town of Washington, is there a possibility that Trump or, or uh, the you know the key figures in the Republican Party conservative movement can triangulate Washington and further exacerbate this dynamic uh, between Biden and his own left flank. I think the Republican leadership, uh, and we've got some good people. I mean, I like Kevin McCarthy. I think he's been underestimated as a leader. He was underappreciated for the efforts he made in this election. Oh, it's amazing what he pulled off. Oh, my gosh, a stunning number of solid, conservative, in many cases, pro-life women uh, to the House when we were expected to be just slaughtered right. and the opposite. So if you've got Kevin and you've got people, uh, I think there are some smart people in the Senate. I hope they show up. Um, but they've got to keep pure the Republican message. And that message has to be uh, not Donald Trump's personality. But Donald Trump's principles of America first, standing up against China, true liberty and freedom, religious uh, liberty, standing strong for the Second Amendment, being strong supporters for the sanctity and value of every human life. These are things that united the Trump supporters. Um, and that's a message that with or without Donald Trump is a winning message for a big, overwhelming population in this country. Yeah, such a great point. And uh, you don't get 75 or 80 million votes unless you have a message that resonates with the base and even much larger than the base. Um, as you look out in the uh, the next 24 months, what is the role for Donald Trump? Should he go back and be the traditional ex-president and fade into history? Will he uh, keep his movement alive? Uh, should he run again in 2024? You, you've got great political instincts. What, what, what's the right role for Donald Trump post-presidency? You know, John, I've been a strong supporter of the president. Uh, he beat me in 16, but as soon as I got out, I was on his team and have been since. And I'm so very grateful for the extraordinary accomplishments that he gave us, not only domestically, but the reset of the Middle East and so many things. Yeah. Having said and I still uh, am grateful for what he's done. We have to be honest. The last month has not been a good one for President Trump. He has uh, sullied his own good reputation. And instead of using the last few weeks to celebrate the successes of his administration and make the, the country really wish he were still going to be president, um, I think some of the rhetoric and some of it wasn't all his fault, but still he's being blamed. And the net result is people are going to be glad that he's not on the stage uh, uh, creating the kind of the discord. So he's going to have to do some work of repair before he can come back and lead. Could he run again? I don't know. Uh, only if he can sort of show that he can be that uh, above it all leader and not just deal with his hurts. And I have said to him personally, and I've said this about him, 
when he is at his, at his best, it's when he's fighting for the people. When he is at his worst, it's when he's fighting for himself. The average American looks at Donald Trump and says, he's a billionaire, he got elected president. He doesn't need anybody fighting for him. He's on top of the mountain. But who's fighting for me? And when Donald Trump was standing and fighting for that disaffected citizen out there who liked going to Olive Garden and who likes shopping at Walmart and who buys things on sale and uh, hands down clothes from the uh, 10-year-old to the 7-year-old. When he's fighting for that group of people out here in America, he's unbeatable and he's lovable. And that's the Donald Trump. If he comes back, uh, he'll be an important voice. But if all he does is to relitigate what went wrong in the election, and I think a lot of things went wrong, but sometimes we have to step back and just accept life isn't fair. There are a lot of things in life. It's just not fair. And so we can nurse our hurts or we can rise above them. If he can rise above them, he's got a great voice. But if he goes back and nurses his hurts and tells us and reminds us of how horrible the election was, I think he limits his uh, influence and his voice. Yeah, that sounds like some pretty sage advice, and uh, and uh, hopefully he'll take that to to heart. When you look at the last um, uh, or the next few uh, months, someone's going to try to step into that vacuum. Obviously, Kevin McCarthy plays an essential role with with the role he plays in the House, and the House being real tight uh, and slim majorities on both sides, or a slim majority for the Democrats. Uh, who are the people you're looking for uh, to step into the void and be the you know the next generation of leaders? And no matter what Donald Trump does and where he stays on the stage, there's always a turning of the guard when something like this happens. Who do you think is going to step into that void? You know, I, I think Kevin McCarthy is one that we both have mentioned, but I, I think guys like Dan Crenshaw have yeah. a real future. Level-headed, articulate, strong. Uh, he, he's just, he's a great voice and his personal story is terrific. Nobody can say, well, I don't know if he really loves America. I mean, he's put it all on the line. So I look at guys like Crenshaw and I say, there's, there's someone with uh, a real leadership role in the future of our party. Uh, I, I look over at the Senate and, uh, you know, quite frankly, sometimes I, I worry about, uh, who has not just the voice, but the platform. There have been some folks that have gotten close. You know, Lindsey Graham has had some great moments, right. but you never know if Lindsey is going to show up. Is it going to be the new Lindsey that stands strong and tough or the Lindsey that, uh, you know, make sure that uh, we just oil the machinery? We can't oil the machinery anymore. The machinery is broken. It's got to be fixed or replaced. And so it may be a different type of Senate leader that emerges. Uh, we'll see who that's going to be. And any uh, any ex governors, current governors that catch your fancy? Chief executive is always fun to run, as you know, as uh, having been one. <laughs> the governors make the best presidential candidates because they've actually run something, exactly. and they're not just deliberators; they're decision makers, and that's what separates a governor from a legislator. Legislators are about pondering, thinking, um, debating, taking their time, and deliberating. Yeah. Governors pull the trigger and decide today. Right now, here's what we're going to do. And I think we have quite a few. Christy Nome from South Dakota is certainly getting a lot of attention. Um, you know, she's got to be careful. But I would say Greg Abbott from Texas, maybe the one above all, uh, and he was my governor for several years here lately, is Ron DeSantis from Florida. Yeah. I think one of the most articulate, 
And frankly, of all of the governors in the country, I'd put DeSantis up there as uh, the most promising. Yeah, a lot of people are talking that he's going to have a great model and uh, the way he's navigated everything is from elections to coronavirus to economy. Uh, he, yep. he's got quite the record and I, I agree. He seems to, and also he's, a, he's, he grew out of the Trump movement. He really has a lot of the same policy values that were core to the Trump era. So that's an interesting one. It'd be fun to watch that. Well, governor, I could spend all day talking. I always learn something. I learned millions of things when I talked to you, but I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us. Wish you well in this new year and hope to get you back on the show sometime soon. Would love to. And John, let me just say, thank you. You're thanking me, but I thank you. You've uncovered more truth, more stories than virtually any journalist I know. And if the oh, rest of the press corps had your uh, level of two things, I think make a great journalist curiosity and a level of what I call healthy cynicism. You have both in large measure, and it's one of the reasons you're a great journalist. And I'm so grateful and I value what you do and how you do it. So keep it up. I will, sir. Thank you very much. That means so much to me personally. I really do. I uh, oh, you know what to say. I'm very humbled. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right, sir. You have a good and blessed day. Folks, we're going to come right back at this commercial break and wrap up the day. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake-me-up-when-the-sun-sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And it is time to wrap things up. What an interview with Mike Huckabee. Uh, we covered everything. Uh, the rising stars of the party, Donald Trump's legacy, and how he gets through this period where his legacy has been tarnished a little bit by the last month. Um, censorship in America, what what conservatives and everyday Americans worried about this can do. What a robust set of thoughts. What a robust ideas. What a great discussion. So grateful we had uh, the governor on today. Could not, could, ask, could not ask for a better guest. Hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, we're going to be back. We won't let you down. We got more guests, more news, more exclusive news. And I have one thought. We're seven days right now from the end of the Trump presidency. There is one thing Trump, the president, can do to cement his legacy that he has failed to do despite multiple promises. Declassify all those documents from the Russia and Ukraine scandals that would give us the real truth, expose the lies and the false narratives in the media, the false statements by Democratic leaders like Adam Schiff 
there's only seven days left. There's not a lot a president can get done. He's still being consequential. We He ruled on Cuba the other day, and so he's still doing things. But Mr. President, on behalf of the American people, as a journalist who believes in freedom of information, declassify those documents. You've been promising to do so since the fall of 2018, certainly the spring and summer of 2019. There's no reason for delay. Tell your aides, tell your declassifiers, tell your FOIA guys, get the job done and give the American people the final truth. We may not get justice, so I think we will, from John Durham. We're not going to get anything more on Ukraine on with a Hunter Biden, uh, I'm sorry, Devin, uh, uh, a uh, Joe Biden administration, but we are, we can enjoy the transparency that only a declassification and release of documents has by all means, Mr. President, it is something you can do for all Americans. It's a pen stroke away. Make it happen if you can. I'm not asking for myself selfishly. I'm asking on behalf of the American people. Bring down that declassification wall. Let us see what's behind it. There are more stories, more secrets, more to learn about our government's failures. We deserve in a full accounting. We only have about 50% of it. And the President of the United States, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, John Ratcliffe, the ODNI, they can do it. And tomorrow, I'm going to talk to you on this podcast exactly what documents we need to classify. Mr. President, if you're listening, bring down that wall of secrecy. Allow us to see the declassified documents. You've promised it time and again. There's seven days left. It's something you can do. All right, folks, that's my thought for the day. Hope you enjoyed, Mike. How can be a great interview? And uh, check out all those stories about the capital security. I think there's a lot to learn there. We will be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. And in the meantime, if you want to do something for Just the News, John Solomon Reports, all those advertisers you just heard from, buy their products, buy their services. Let them know you love them. Let them know that you appreciate that they support what we're doing here journalism, honest journalism we're trying to achieve for you here at justthenews.com and John Solomon Reports. Okay, folks, have a blessed night. God bless America. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition.